Welcome back. I'm glad you're here tonight. We are starting the final book of the Old Testament and the final book, of, of course, of the Minor Prophets. And that is the book of Malachi, which is the end of the beginning in a sense. Uh, certainly not by actual volume in your Bibles. We're well past halfway. But as far as the Old and New Testament, this is the end. And Malachi is, in many ways, he's a return to form. Zechariah was mostly focused on a long-term prophecy and apocalypse, again, visions of things not yet revealed. Malachi primarily is going to be back to God giving commands or giving instructions to the Israelites to correct behaviors that were going on. But there's some changes. The book of Malachi is absolutely a transitory book. It's transitioning between the problems the Israelites had before the exile, and we're going to see some new problems that Jesus will deal with extensively. In fact, there's many New Testament connections with Malachi. Not only is Malachi quoted frequently, again, in the New Testament, and you're going to recognize some of the verses because they're quoted word for word in the New Testament, but the ideas that God communicates through the prophet Malachi are ideas that Jesus is going to pick up on. In fact, the themes of Malachi really run very nicely into the New Testament. So we want to talk about that. And we'll be talking about Malachi over the next few weeks and the various things that he has to say. Today, of course, focusing on Malachi chapter 1. Now, Malachi is one of the prophets of which we know nothing about. In fact, it's actually probably accurate to say that he is the prophet we know the least about. In fact, we know even less about him than we know about someone like Obadiah, which we know very little about. But at least we know Obadiah was a person. Uh, Malachi might not even be an actual name. It might be just the title, the messenger. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, there's no scriptural information, period, about who Malachi is. His name does not appear, or the name Malachi itself does not appear anywhere else. The word Malachi appears quite frequently in the Old Testament, but again, it's always uh, not a specific person. It's always a messenger uh, when used elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's clearly used in the beginning of Malachi as a name, which if you have your Bible open, that's the very first line in your text. So here it is being used as a name, but it is not used as a name anywhere else in Scripture. So who this Malachi is, we don't know. Now, based on the topics and based on Jewish tradition, we very strongly associate the book of Malachi with Nehemiah. So, based on the topics being discussed and the historical account of Nehemiah, we guess that Malachi either directly preceded Nehemiah, because there's going to be some parallel themes. For example, it seems the Israelites were struggling or had been marrying outside of their faith, and Malachi is going to try to correct them for that. We know Nehemiah did the same thing. That has led some people to suggest Malachi was a prophet that was working in Israel right before Nehemiah came back. We also know in the book of Nehemiah that there is a gap as in Nehemiah has to go back to the Persian court, gather more resources, and return. This is the other time period where Malachi would have been present. Because seemingly in Nehemiah, the people listened to Nehemiah. So either they had reverted to their old ways, and therefore Malachi was necessary, or Malachi was preaching to them before Nehemiah came. Again, since we have no other data from Scripture, this is really just for your benefit. You can make your own decision here. It doesn't really change the truth of the book 
uh, but just for your information. So this would date it sometime between 445 and 425. Again, Jewish tradition tells us that Malachi was the final book written in the Old Testament. Although certainly Nehemiah and Esther both have arguments in their favor as being the final books. They deal with almost the same time periods and they all would have been very close to each other. So Nehemiah, Esther, and Malachi were without a doubt the last three books written, which order they were actually written in uh, because scripture itself doesn't say. We do have to make some educated guesses. I personally lean toward Malachi, but again, um, there's no scriptural evidence so if you have a different theory on the order of those three books that's just fine now again i mentioned that malachi himself is not even clearly a individual person it could be that malachi here is a title in hebrew literally it means my messenger specifically god's messenger actually in almost all other appearances of the word in the Old Testament. And like I said, it's not used as a name. It's not a common name in Israel. In fact, most ancient authors or most ancient historians actually believe that Malachi is actually a pen name for either Ezra or Zechariah. And many people believe that this book was split off from Zechariah because it would make 12, and 12 for the Jews was a very important number, a holy number. And so perhaps this last section, this last three-chapter section, I know it has four chapters in English, it has three in Hebrew. Um, Perhaps this last three-chapter section was split off so that you could have 12 minor prophets rather than 11. On the other hand, and by the way, this is how I feel personally. Again, there's room for discussion here. Uh, The name Malachi is used the same way proper names are used all throughout the minor prophets. I think Malachi was probably his own unique prophet myself. Uh, But again, it doesn't change the truth of the book in either case. Whether this is Ezra or Zechariah doesn't change a bit the truth that God has to share with the people that he is speaking to. And again, Malachi just has no historical data, period. Instead, the message of Malachi is what we want to focus on. And in this, we can be very clear. Malachi is a very direct book. God has some very clear things to say to Israel and really some really clear conclusions that we can draw from what God has to say. Malachi is unique because it is actually at least a primary text. There is some prophecy at the end, which we'll get to in our final week on Malachi, that is different. But the main body of the work is a sequence of seven questions or seven statements that are actually rhetorical questions. God asks a question or makes a statement. The people respond to this statement and then God responds to their response. And you'll see this again and again. This pattern will make sense. There's seven of them between chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this is probably, again, this helps us to think through how these books actually came to be. It was likely not Malachi writing this entire book in one go. Probably what we are seeing is snapshots of a conversation. In other words, God told Malachi, go speak to the people. He does. The people 
respond. Actually, they argue. Every time that Malachi has an instruction from God, the people have a pithy response. No, God, we're not actually doing that. Or no, God, that's not the case. And God responds. So probably what we're seeing is Malachi's ministry over seven different time periods where he's bringing a message from the Lord. The people are arguing with it and God settles the Debate Again, these seven questions, these seven rhetorical questions that Malachi is going to bring. Unfortunately, Malachi is also unique in the unresponsiveness or the unreceptiveness of the people to the message. Certainly we know that in many of the minor prophets, the people did not respond the way that God called them to. But we have a unique level of unresponsiveness. We can assume that the people did not obey the other minor prophets, because we know that judgment still occurred. However, in this book, we actually have the responses recorded, and it's always arguing. The Jews actually claimed that they were fulfilling the law, even though God directly tells them, you're not fulfilling the law. They want to argue about it. No, God, we are fulfilling the law. And then God has to retort and say, you are not And this is really a transition into the far more insidious trend that we're going to see develop fully in the Gospels, where we have some really religious people who thought they were really nailing what God wanted for them, except they were totally missing it, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees are the poster guys for this, although they're not alone. Unfortunately, this was rife in all of Israel. But Malachi is kind of like the path to where the Pharisees and the Sadducees end up. We can already see this line of thinking, this arguing with God, hyperfixating on what the Jews thought the law was and not actually caring what God's intention really was. So tonight, in chapter 1, we're going to look at the first three of these statements slash questions that God has for the Israelites. And we want to consider what they can teach us today. Because I think you'll find, if you haven't read Malachi in a while, I encourage you to read it. Malachi is one of those books that really feels like it has some modern implications. You'll read what the culture of Israel was like and you'll go, wow, that sounds pretty familiar. So God's words in Malachi, I think, are particularly relevant. Now, I want to talk about all three of these statements. The first is this in verse 2, nearly at the beginning. I have loved you, saith the Lord. And then we have a response from the Israelites. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. Now, what we're probably getting here is a snapshot of how the Jews felt after the exile. There was clearly a latent sense of abandonment from God because God had allowed the exile to happen. Perhaps there were people claiming that God no longer loved the Jews, but God reminds them that he loves them. And because he loved them, he reached out to them and he gave them his law in the first place. And he illustrates this by describing Jacob and Esau. If we look at Jacob and Esau, to be honest, at least until the very end of Jacob's life, uh, it is pretty much full of mistakes. He certainly has the right intentions. We've talked about this in here before. He wants the blessing. He wants the birthright. That's great. But he's willing to lie and steal his way to it, which is absolutely not great. That is against 
God's law. And yet what God reveals here is that he loved Jacob. He chose to love Jacob and he chose to effectively hate Esau because he loved Jacob. That's like hating Esau. And this shows God's favor. God favors Judah. He favors the Jews, not because they're awesome or because they're special on their own, but they're special because God has chosen them and they've forgotten this. They either feel unloved on one side or they feel special inherently. God chose us because we were the most awesome. God's establishing from the beginning of the book, I chose you. I called you. I called you to obedience, something that you're not doing, which we will get into. Now, Paul really is the most helpful in interpreting this passage. He quotes it and really develops a three-chapter argument based on this verse and some others that he pulls in Romans 9, where he actually applies this, in a sense, to salvation. He reminds us that God loved us first. We are, as Christians, Jacob in this illustration, God loved us, not because we deserved it, but because God chose to do so. He reached across the gap first and he provided a way for salvation, a reminder to us that God did all the work. He started the process. It was all God. Now, as a result of that, Israel should have been obeying. If they had kept that perspective correct, they would have had some changed action. But of course, they didn't have that. This gets into the more actionable of these first few statements, both of which are found in verses 6 and seven, although we'll deal with them kind of separately here. Verse six reads this way. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts. O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Yet offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now God here is stating that Israel is not honoring him as evidenced by poor sacrifices. In fact, we can take a guess here on exactly what God means here. Not only is he going to describe the, the in or the, the unacceptability of the sacrifices, primarily because they are not very high quality animals. They are not the first fruits. But we actually know that all of the cultures surrounding Judah at this time actually had backwards practices from what God had commanded in the Levitical law. God actually expected for nice, healthy animals to be sacrificed, innocent animals that were clearly without blemish, because, of course, the purpose of the sacrificial system was to point towards what God was going to do with the Messiah. He was going to... Send someone who is innocent, who is without sin, to die for sin for us. This is what the sacrificial system was doing. Persia and Greece, the two primary religious alternatives to the Israelites at this time, had a completely different reason for sacrificing. For them, they were trying to feed the gods. However, conveniently, someone very smart at selling animals had figured out that the gods fortunately don't eat the meat... They eat everything else, entrails, bones, anything you would never want to eat, gods eat that. And all the nice cuts of meat, you get to eat that. And so that's what they would offer. In Greece, and Persia, this is the kind of things that are being offered. By the way, this is actually why Paul has this long discussion about meat offered to idols. The meat itself wasn't burned. 
the entrails were burned, which means you cut the meat off and you can sell it in the marketplace. So Paul deals with this same thing. So undoubtedly, they had taken other religions' ideas of sacrifices and they had brought them in. They were offering low-quality things, bad animals, bones, entrails, not obeying what the law said. Now here we see that the attitude of the Israelites was, we are creating our own law. God, we are following your sacrifices. You said you wanted lambs. We're giving you lambs. Not the right lambs, but we're giving you what you want. And they want to argue about this. They actually say, no, God, what we're giving you isn't defiling to you. It isn't taking away from you. God responds, I didn't quote this verse, but he actually says, why don't you try giving what you're giving to me to the Persian governor and see how he responds. So try taking your things that you say are acceptable and try giving them to anyone else. You'll quickly find that they're not. Why would I take these? God deserves honor as a father or as a civil official. In the same way that hopefully none of you would give a pile of garbage to your dad on, say, Thanksgiving coming up, right? You would give him, I hope, nice things, the prime cut of the turkey. Maybe he gets the ceremonial first slice, okay? That's what you would give him. That's what a father deserves. This is not what God is receiving. Instead, what the Jews are trying to do is they're trying to give God the technically correct thing while keeping what they want for themselves. This kind of attitude, of course, on perfect display by the Pharisees later on. God makes an incredibly radical statement in Malachi 1.10. He says this, who is there even among you that would shut the doors of the temple? That's what he's talking about for naught. Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. This is what God says. He says he wishes the temple be closed down rather than have the law followed in the wrong way. This is a radical statement by God. God instituted temple worship. He instituted the laws that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God says, you're doing it so wrong, I wish you just wouldn't do it in the first place. It would be better for you if you just completely ignored my law than what you're actually doing. Now, Jesus is going to expand on this in Matthew 5, 7. Like I said, this theme is going to continue right on to the New Testament. Where in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, its primary teaching operation is Jesus pointing out what you have heard said, the law, or specifically the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, and Jesus expands upon it. He goes deeper. He teaches with authority that this is what God actually holds you to. Okay, you've got the law. You say to yourself, I'm not killing, therefore I'm not violating the law. Jesus says, no, it's actually more than that. If you say you hate your brother, if you hate in your heart, if you say fool to your brother, you are guilty of sin. So what's not important is the specific way in which you follow the law. What is important is God's intent. That's what you must know. An attitude of obedience to God 
is what matters. And by the way, that is not to say that people won't follow the law if they're trying to. If you're obeying God, if your attitude is one of obedience, the action that is required will naturally follow. If you're just trying to figure out a way to perform the action and you don't care about actually obeying God, then you get the kind of crazy nonsense that the Pharisees accumulated where they were attacking Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. That's the kind of attitudes that we get to eventually. Now, this first chapter is really about the dangers of religious tradition, which again, because we have the Gospels, we see how dangerous this can be. Because this is an excellent opportunity to see the shift in problems. So previously, the big problem in Israel seemed to be idolatry. They're always off following other gods. Hosea, great example of this, where he actually has Hosea marry Gomer, an unfaithful wife, to illustrate this. So this is the old problem, idolatry after other gods. After the exile, the Jews do well on this. They don't go worship Baal anymore. No more Baal. They technically, they claim they're worshiping the God of the Bible, Yahweh. That's who they say they're worshiping. The problem is their idolatry is still around. It's just changed in its form. They're worshiping their traditions, and the power they are accumulating for themselves, especially the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're still idolatrous. They're still replacing God with something else. The more dangerous thing is they still keep saying God's name even while they're actually worshiping the wrong thing. The Israelites wanted to worship God in their way. They wanted to be in the driver's seat here. They'd forgotten why they were supposed to be worshiping in the first place. So for us, any practice, old or new, that does not honor God and prioritize his priorities, which generally glorify Jesus and push people towards Jesus, okay, those are the big two. There's lots of smaller ways we can do this in specific instruction, but those are the big ones. It's the wrong practice, even if it's common. It might be done everywhere, just like it was for the Pharisees and Sadducees, that doesn't mean it's right. In fact, let me give you encouragement on this topic from two places, one Old Testament, one New Testament, which I think Micah really, or Malachi, excuse me, really brings to mind. The first is Samuel in his confrontation with Saul. This is where we see that God's intention or God's heart on this matter has always been obedience and not on how you follow the law specifically. If you're obeying, you're going to follow the law. You've got to get the obedience right first. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Better to, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. The Israelites were focusing on what they were doing, not who they were doing it for. Jesus, I already described this, but I think it's good to hear Jesus' actual words, expands on this. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old times, thou shalt not kill. And this is true. This is part of the Ten Commandments. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in the danger of of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka or evil in Hebrew shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus is reminding us that the action is just part of it. 
God's intention is what matters. Obeying God is what matters. And trusting to religious tradition is the wrong way to go about things. Instead, we should obey God. And again, Malachi gives us a great example. God is giving the Israelites instructions. Do they listen? No. They argue. That's what they're doing. They're arguing with God when he's telling them to obey. And this kind of attitude, as we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, is eventually going to lead God to say, if you want to disobey, if you want to ignore my instructions, then I'll let you. Fortunately, I'm sending a Messiah that's going to fix this problem. We'll get to that in the next few chapters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the truth that you gave to us in Malachi. Thank you for these strong statements to the Jews, which remind us that obedience is what matters and that obedience will lead us to do the right thing. Help us not to hyperfixate on rules and laws, but help us instead to focus on pleasing you with everything we do, to holding ourselves to Jesus' standard and following after him, becoming more like Jesus. Help us to do that as a church this week. Help us to push each other towards Jesus this week. We ask all this in your name. Amen. The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ, and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually 
depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for His honor and for His glory.